0: Namo more <coughs> does arahato hagawato, Adahado, some ma, some would have some. Not more does some hagawato, Adahado, some ma, some would have For those who um, have not been along to these earlier readings, this is uh, Ajahn Sumato's book, Don't Take Your Life Personally, which is the most recently printed of his books. And these are talks from the Leicester uh, Summer School that he used to attend every year for 15, uh, maybe 20 years altogether. And so this talk that we were in the middle of, of course, three weeks went by, just like that. Three weeks ago we started this talk, so some of you might remember it, some of you might not. But it's uh, called, the, uh, Dhamma is not an ideal. And this was given on the 7th of August, 2002. So at the Leicester Summer School then there would be representatives of uh, different Buddhist traditions. So uh, usually Lumpur Sumedha would be there uh, as the Theravada representative. And then uh, Geshe Tashi, who's a Tibetan a monk from the Gelugpa tradition, he would be there uh, representing the Tibetans. And then uh, uh, G, uh, Reverend uh, Jisu Sunim, a Korean uh, vikshu. Uh, he was also in Thailand for a number of years, and his his Pali name in Thailand was sumeto So uh, Lumpur used to delight in introducing him, saying, this is sumeto bhikkhu. <laughs> Just to confuse people. Uh, so the three of them were the main teachers every year, and other people would come along, and Zen teachers and... Um, other traditions will be represented as well. So sometimes in these talks, Bumpur will refer to what one of the other speakers has um, been referring to, or he'll take a theme that someone else has been, say, uh, explaining the day before, and he'll he'll sort of launch off uh, on his own explanations with respect to that. So we're part of the way through this talk called Dhamma is not an ideal. Monastic, or religious conventions, often come from the ideal position, which is fair enough. Not to say that there is anything wrong with that, but how do we relate to this idealism? On a personal level, we can feel intimidated by it. And that can make us feel even more worthless than we did before, because we should be compassionate. And yet, right now, we're not feeling anything near that. But reflection is non-judgmental. So if I'm feeling petty and mean, And relate to that through awareness, then it is seen to be like this. Feeling ungrateful, resentful, mean and nasty is like this. It's a question of just allowing it to be the way it is without taking it personally anymore. This is putting it into the context of the way it is, rather than seeing it as some personal flaw, some personal defect. This is not playing games with the mind, It isn't trying to say it's something that it isn't, but is directly looking at the way it is in an uncritical way. Awareness is not a critical function. It doesn't tell you how it should be. It just allows you to see that it is like this. Dhamma reflections on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self are ways of helping you look at things in an objective way. If feeling mean and nasty is the way it is right now, then it is like this. When you accept something, you can observe it and allow it to be, so that you can see its changingness, its impermanence. That becomes obvious. If, on the other hand, you just try to get rid of what you're experiencing, you can't see its impermanence. There is instead a resistance to it, which makes it seem as though it is a permanent problem and is really yours then you don't accept it. You fight against it and make it into even more of a problem. This is where trust comes in. It takes a high degree of trust and faith to allow something that you're frightened of, or don't like, to become fully conscious. The tendency is to react to things like that, push them away, deny them, distract yourself from them, or get stuck in despair. I encourage you to really investigate this. In the Buddhist teachings, terms like investigate are used, or look into the heart of the matter, or get to the source. So I encourage you to get behind the condition that exists in the present. Right now, our bodies exist in the present. They are like this. Well, This is a a very, very oft-repeated theme in Lumpur's teachings, and particularly taking a phrase like, uh, awareness is not a critical function. It doesn't tell you how it should be. So this is the quality of uh, of the sort of fundamental nature of mind, and it's a pure activity, if you like, that it's aware, it knows. And then the the challenge of meditation is to see how that awareness then gets uh, co-opted very, very quickly by the uh, self-centered habits of uh, I'm thinking, I'm feeling, I'm wanting, I'm not wanting, I approve, I disapprove, I should be this way, they should be that way. So that 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 pure awareness on its own is being uh, hijacked or taken over or sort of uh, uh, say like a a, um, uh, a kind of uh, virus that takes over the body and gives you an illness. So a month or so ago I had a a, a a a cold of heroic proportions. My kind of face, my eyes, my nose, everything was running. <laughs> my lungs were filled with, with goop, and uh, so the the system had been you know the sort of average human system had been overtaken by the cold bug. It was like an infection that that bug had, had taken over. So the habits of our minds are like those kind of bugs. They they come in and so the the self-righteousness bug or the self-hatred bug or the I've got to have a bit more bug uh, or I, I, I've got to get rid of this or I'll never be happy bug. And so that um, when Lumpur talks about that, that awareness is not a critical function, it's Talking about that fundamental nature of mind, you know, which is bug free that's when the <laughs> and uh, so the meditation is getting to know how the bugs work, and then this what he's describing here is very much uh, a process of getting familiar with the patterns that operate in us, the way we identify with being uh, comfortable or uncomfortable, healthy or sick, being a woman, being a man, being a monastic, being a layperson, being a Theravadan, being a monastic, not being anything. <laughs> we can be we can be identified with not being a buddhist or not being a yeah a, a, uh, a uh, identified that that sense of i'm not anything just don't call me anything i'm not identified with anything i don't belong to anything i'm a free agent we can be identified with the idea that we're a free agent that makes sense so uh with with respect to this then again one of the things i'm saying over and over uh one of the ways that people often misinterpret Sumato's teachings, even though he was an extremely active and creative person and took a lot of, a huge amount of initiative in his life and his, uh, his teaching career, um, it can come across as a kind of passivity. So when the mind says, uh, it's this way, or this is the way it is, as he says about eight or ten times in three paragraphs, <laughs> that uh, that can seem like this is the way it is, therefore, freeze just go numb just you you're you're sitting in this in the chair in the movie theater and the whole movie just washes over you and you are not involved you have no control or interaction or involvement with what goes on on the screen you're the you're the the abstracted you're the disconnected observer and nothing that you can do can make anything that happens on the screen change so that that's the that's a false impression i would say and i've said over and over and over because there is a relatedness of the mind, so along with that, that non-critical function, it's not critical, but it does recognize that this particular pattern of, act, of, of activity, if that's followed, that will lead to pain and difficulty and stress. So if there's an angry impulse, if that's followed and you yell at somebody, then there's going to be painful feelings that come from that. If there's a compassionate or kindly uh, impulse then it's recognised oh, that will uh, probably lead towards uh, comfort and ease and and uh, peacefulness and so that it's not uh, there there isn't a, a a disconnect in terms of a a, um, a kind of numbing or dissociation or abstraction these are long english words i'm realizing english is not the first language of most people here but it's i feel it's it's really centrally important to get a sense of how that works and so that in this moment the say right now i'm speaking so without being uh, attached to particular perceptions there's a uh, a choosing of words that is being made in order to explain a point i'm not just talking nonsense i hope (laughs) but it's uh, so that that sense of of awareness then informs the choices that can be made so your capacity to act and to choose is part of the way things are. That's a kind of short way of saying it. Your ability to respond, your connection with the experiential field, the connection of your heart with the whole field of experience, is part of the way things are. And so that the um, there's a, a uh, one of those um, sort of religious jokes that gets told. Um, there's a there's a Hindu version and there's a there's a Christian version. <laughs> the, uh, the Hindu, to do the Hindu version, so there's a, uh, a disciple of a guru, um, and, <clears throat> so, uh, and the, the guru says, if, you, if, you bec- if you're my follower, then uh, no harm will come to you. you know, if you have great faith in me and you follow my teachings, then no harm will come to you. Um, and you, but part of my teachings is that you need to be uh, awake and aware at all times. So then the disciple is walking down the dusty street in the middle of the village, and, a, and an elephant uh, comes charging along. And the mahout, uh, the elephant trainer, on the back of the elephant, has lost control. The elephant is going for a run, charging down the street, and, can't, and the, the mahout can't do anything about it. So the mahout yells out, get out of the way, get out of the way. And then the, the disciple walking down the street says, my guru has told me if I have faith in him, no, no harm can come to me. And then the mahout says, get out of the way, get out of the way. And he said, "Well, my guru's told me no harm can come to me." There, <laughs> predictably, the uh, the disciple gets run over by the elephant, beaten up, bones broken, and such like. Drags uh, drags himself to the ashram. He says, "Guruji, Guruji, um, I'm I, I'm really uh, I'm really sick and injured." He said, "What happened to you?" He said, "Well, there was this wild this elephant came charging down the street and knocked me over." He said, "Well, why didn't you get out of the way?" He said, "Well, you told me that if I followed your teachings, no harm would come to me." He said, "Well, didn't." Didn't you see that there was an elephant running at you? you know, weren't you aware that that might be dangerous? And he said, well, yeah, but I, I, you, know, you said not, no harm would come to me. And he said, well, do you think that I was telling you to be completely stupid? You know, th- and didn't anyone kind of yell at you or warn you? And Oh, yeah, the, the guy riding on his back told me, get out of the way, get out of the way. So uh, that's a, a one way of depicting that, um, uh, that kind of... of uh, stepping down from your own common sense, <laughs> out of some sort of misguided spiritual principle, uh, and to give you the Christian one as well, which is a uh, just to be fair. So there's probably a Buddhist one too, but uh, I'm not sure the the story of it. So the Christian one is: there's a huge flood, and uh, the the waters are rising, and this uh, this uh, uh, family have climbed out onto the the roof of their house, and they're very devout. Um, uh, and uh, they, they believe in the power of the Lord to save them. And so the mum's up, up on the roof, you know, they uh, in, <clears throat> in a, on a, a raft. Mum got separated from them. She's up on the roof. And so then um, the, the, uh, the, the floodwaters are rising and rising and rising and the family, husband and the kids have, have warned us, rescue people. That um, you know, they're, they're, his wife's still in, in the in the house, and so they send out a helicopter, and uh, <clears throat> so that the the, uh, the helicopter comes over and they drop the ladder down and says uh, and says, you know, get on board, get on board. He uh, um, she says, no, I have great faith in the Lord, you know, that uh, I, and so that uh, the Lord will protect me, and then said, look, get on, just just grab the ladder. I can't grab that ladder, and, and besides, the Lord will protect me. I've, I've had faith all these years, and so you know, please go away. Okay. So then, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a crew from the, um, uh, from the Coast Guard, uh, the, the boats come along uh, with a, with a, uh, a motorboat and, and they come up to the roof and the water's rising and rising. It's nearly to the top of the roof. And, and then uh, the, the, the boat comes along with the rescuers and then they say, Get on board, get on board. Yeah, the, the water's rising. No, no, the Lord will protect me. I've had faith all my life. The Lord, the Lord will save me. I have great confidence. The Lord, uh, you know, the Lord is, is my protector. Please go away. And they try to persuade her. She won't, she won't follow. So then the, the boat, little boat, goes away. So then the water's rising and rising and rising, kind of past her knees, past up her chest. She's standing on the roof, kind of, the water's up, up to her nose. And <clears throat> and then she, okay, now, now it's going to come. Now, 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 now that the God Almighty is going to reach down from the heavens and, and lift me up and rescue me. The angel's going to come and carry me away. But they don't. The water rises past her noses and she drowns. So she ends up, ends up in heaven and, <clears throat> and asks for an interview with the boss. And, <clears throat> and she said, I'm very upset because I've had faith in you all these years. I've been going to church every weekend. I brought up my family in a really honorable and responsible way. And I've had perfect faith in, in you and in Jesus all these years. Why didn't you rescue me? I said, what do you mean, why didn't I rescue you? I sent you a helicopter and a boat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to Ajan Sematon. Reflecting on the experience of the physical body changes our relationship to it, doesn't it? We usually think the mind is inside the brain. The mind is in the brain, and the brain is in the head. So we assume the mind is up here. And we make the further assumption that consciousness is also in the brain. Yet we can be aware of the body as an experience without assuming that the brain is aware of the body as experience. We can merely be aware of the body as experience. We then see that the body is contained in consciousness, rather than consciousness being something that comes out of the brain. It's as though we are beginning to change from identifying with a little bit of physical anatomy to a more expansive perspective of seeing that the body is in consciousness. Because I am aware of my body as experience, I cannot see my face. Douglas Harding, who is uh, famous, uh, at least in the meditation circles, uh, for having written the book On Having No Head, Zen and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. Douglas Harding, some of you will remember, used to talk about having no head. I cannot see my own eyes. You can see my face and eyes, but I can't. That's the way it is. I can look at a photograph of myself or look into the mirror and get a sense of what I look like, But at this moment, I cannot actually see my own face. And yet it is right here. I can see your faces. Now, these are just simple ways of examining experience, and they can help us break down a lot of the assumptions we make. I am my face, quote-unquote, is a very strong assumption, a very strong identity. But just notice that consciousness is like this. Consciousness is not a personal thing. It's universal. We create personality into consciousness. When we are are aware, however, we're not creating anything. When we are really conscious and aware, there is no personality. There's no personal thing involved unless I start identifying with it. I am conscious and aware. I'm a mindful monk. Then I'm creating some kind of identity into consciousness. As an experience right now in the present, conscious awareness is like this. Really notice this. It is alert, intelligent, here and now. But then I can create myself into I'm Ajahn Sumato, I'm screwed up, and on and on like that. I can create the whole world into consciousness. (coughs) So, this uh, point that he makes here about the uh, consciousness and the brain, this is an ongoing field of reflection since humans were sitting around the fire, <laughs> uh, 100,000 years to gather of families, uh, <clears throat> and on and on since then. So that the, the point he's making is that uh, even though you can say, well, without a brain, you, your body's dead, your life is ended, or you can't know anything, but in this, mo- this, this present moment, everything that we know about this body, its shape, its form, its feelings and sensations and so on, is known through the medium of consciousness. All through our lives, everything we've ever known about this body or anybody else or the world has been known through the medium, through the agency of, of consciousness, of being, uh, being aware. It's all happened in your mind. Ever since you were a tiny baby or even in the womb, your experience of being inside your mother, the uh, experience of being a little child, even before you, we have words to describe what we're feeling, it's all known through the mind. Everything that we've ever known, everything that's ever happened in our lives, has only ever been known through this mind. And even if you're a scientist with, uh, with machines that can measure things, you need a consciousness to read the machine. <laughs> you can't read the numbers on the machine without an ability to read, and that happens through awareness, through consciousness. So as some forwards uh, very, very often say, so you can say, we are sitting in the sala at Amravati, but the sala at Amravati is in your mind. Say, so I see you. Closing the eyes, I don't see you. I see the back of my eyelids. I speak, you can hear my voice. I stop speaking. Hear yeah, the sound of silence. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we are consciously creating a representation of the world in our awareness, in, in the consciousness, uh, moment by moment. So that's what he's saying, that and on having no head, these teachings of Douglas Harding arose from a, an insight he had when walking in the mountains And this suddenly had this realization of, oh, the whole world is happening in my mind. And that, and he used a sort of attention catching phrase as a title for the book, on having no head. But um, that is, again, it's not just a mind game. It's not just a a, a kind of a way of playing with things. But it's helping to see that, uh, again, as I've often said, rather than, than us experiencing the world, we experience this mind's version of the world. And because of our language, our, our age, our education, our physical experience, then uh, we all experience a slightly different world. Our, our different minds shape the, the world in, in slightly different ways. And, the, um, and also the, the point of Zumpo saying, consciousness is not a personal thing, it's universal saying that the mind uh, another way of putting that uh, and i tend to use the word mind instead of consciousness but they're, they're, they can be uh, exchanged for each other they can be uh, uh, synonymous is that the the mind is not a person that quality of awareness it's not female it's not male it's not old it's not young the awareness of the mind of a, of a baby and the awareness of a person on their deathbed is awareness is exactly the same. So when Gampopa says consciousness is not a personal thing, it's universal. It's like saying gravity. Gravity works on a baby. Gravity works on a middle-aged person. Gravity works on a, a dying person. It's universal. It's not personal. It's a it's a non-individual quality. And so that, uh, <clears throat> and when when he's saying that when we're conscious and really aware, there is no personality. So for example, I'm sure every one of us has had the experience of being really really frightened really excited or really angry or filled with, with desire or greed and at that moment when you're really uh, af- afraid of something in a way you disappear your personality disappears like uh, an example Lungpo would often give is like if you're a, a rock climber or you're um you're uh, you've jumped off a cliff on a hang glider you're not thinking about your insurance policy or maybe you are. <laughs> I think mean, that's a boring example. You're not thinking about your relationship with, your, uh, with your, your siblings. You're not thinking about what you're going to be doing next week. You are flying through the air, spinning around, uh, uh, and uh, wondering how you're going to land. You, you know, if you're clinging to a, a cliff, uh, uh, with a, you've got about an inch of, of, of ledge to, to tip your, with the tips of your toes, and you're and holding on with your hands, you're not thinking about your relationship with your mom and dad, right? You are, where's the next handhold? How do I move? You know, your, your mind is completely focused. So in those moments of extreme focus, and that's why we like uh, those kind of adventure sports or scary movies or exciting movies, or, uh, and why we like to meditate, because at one-pointedness, then those personal limitations and, and uh, the... Um, the habits of, of uh, selfing, they fall away. And so when you say you're really angry with someone in a sense, you forget yourself because that person is wrong and they shouldn't be, there. You know, how dare they? And then the mind goes to that wrongness and all of your personal considerations or your personal views, in a sense, drop away in that moment. And there's a, that one wrong thing that shouldn't be, or desire, you know, you're, you're shopping. And, there's a, and you just—that's the one I want. Yes. So in that moment of yes, then the, you've you've forgotten yourself, and that's why people like to shop. <laughs> that's why people like to get angry. That's why people like kind of competitive sports because when you're on the terrace rooting for your team and and uh, and they just got a goal in that moment, you've got a huge yes. I got what I wanted, and then in a sense you you forget all of those individual personal concerns because of that one-pointed quality so uh, part of the the skills of buddhist practice are how to create wholesome one-pointedness rather than just going to shop (laughs) or get angry with people or um or uh, go to get uh, obsessed with competitive sports or or objects of of fear or, or or worry um that the, the Buddha has, in his teachings, produced a, a, a kind of infinite array of skillful means, of ways of focusing the mind, putting the attention on wholesome things, and to help develop that quality of one-pointedness, that help, that self-relinquishing, that letting go of self-view, so that it doesn't bring any destructive results, but rather brings results that are, that are, are wholesome. Because a lot of the ways of, of letting go of self-concern are very destructive and create a lot of problems for ourselves and others and are very expensive <laughs> and yeah, create more uh, more trouble and difficulty. And so that uh, one of the amazing things about Buddha Dhamma, I find, is this kind of extraordinary range of upaya or skillful means that the Buddha came up with, with ways of guiding our attention to uh, to uh, come to skillful results and so that there's a a way that the mind cannot rely upon external activities or external objects to find that quality of wholeness or fullness that that quality of one-pointedness of mind can be established in the present moment free of self-view and awake to the dhamma awake to the way things are and so that there's not that sense of needing an object or needing to to contend with someone or to get, uh, uh, say, uh, angry with someone or to be stimulated or excited in order to find that sense of, of um, say, fulfillment, but rather by developing meditation and one-pointedness on the present that's not dependent on, on uh, those kind of emotional charges but is based simply on wakefulness, then the heart can awaken to its own completeness, its own fullness in the present moment. And so, that as uh, as Lumpur says here, uh, <clears throat> as an experience right now in the present, consciousness, conscious awareness is like this. Really, notices it is alert, intelligent here and now. But then I can create myself into I imagine somato. I screwed up, and on and on like that. Do so you see what that what is being talked about? Any questions or thoughts, reflections? I haven't really talked to anyone for three weeks, so you can <laughs> forgive me if I can get over-abundant in my speech flow. It's the way it is. As you investigate and explore consciousness, you begin to realize how it actually is. This helps in solving all kinds of problems. personal societal, communal, family. So many problems arise around views and opinions, identities, the ideals we have of how things should be, or how things should not be, and so on. I think idealistic people have a terrible time living with each other, actually, because they're always coming from the top. I remember falling down as a child and skinning my knee, and then wondering why God created pain. I thought, if I were God, I would never create pain, and I imagined what should be according to the ideal of being happy, of being without any unhappiness, of having the best without having to deal with anything less. Idealism carried to absurdity. But Dhamma is not an ideal, is it? It's the way it is. There's a relentless, inexorable change going on, and there is nothing that can save you on a conditioned level. There's always this dukkha, this sense of unsatisfactoriness. Money, worldly achievements, prestige, whatever, all are going to fail you as refuges. There's nothing you can hold on to in this realm of conditionality that is satisfying. It may be temporarily gratifying, but that's the best you can say about it. This is not a teaching. I'm not saying you should grasp this as a teaching. It's a reflection. Can you find permanent satisfaction through grasping in the conditioned realm? This is something to investigate. Is it possible to find permanent satisfaction through grasping at an identity with your body, with your emotions, with your ideals? Can you find a place in the world where you are permanently happy, where there is no suffering? This is self-inquiry. You are looking into whether these things are possible. Sometimes people say, Buddhists teach that everything is suffering and everything is impermanent, and they believe in Nibbāna, which is extinction. It all sounds nihilistic. Well, oh sorry, that's fine. Sometimes people say, Buddhists teach that everything is suffering and everything is impermanent, and they believe in Nibbāna, which is extinction. That all sounds nihilistic. Well, some Buddhists might actually believe in that kind of thing, but that is not the point of the teaching. This teaching is not for grasping, it's for exploring. And this exploration is up to each one of us. It's something we can do, and no one else can make us do. Whether we do it or not, of course, is up to us. My experience is that as one becomes more confident in this practice, the subtleties start to come up. One becomes kind of world-weary. You go through a stage where you just look at this world and think, it's crazy, I'm living in a madhouse. Society is nuts. Not hard to make that observation. Even, <laughs> even though this Dumber Talk was given in 2002, so 17 years ago. Not a huge amount of improvement. <clears throat> I'm living in a madhouse. Soci- society is nuts. And it is, actually. But if you attach to this view you get a feeling of weariness and a kind of longing to die. Oh, I've had enough. And then something happens, another issue, another rotten meeting in the monastery, and you think, no, not this again. Don't they ever learn? Do we have to go through this again? And the mind starts complaining. This is where you have to keep with the present moment. If you're attached to world weariness, you're attached to just another thing. It's quite a challenge to keep with the present moment. It isn't easy. So also, part of the the background is a theme of idealism, and I think a a somewhat veiled comment um, where Lumpur says, I think idealistic people have a terrible time living with each other. Um, The people who organized this uh, Leicester summer school um, did live in a Dhamma community down in the west of England with quite a number of other high-minded and well-known Dhamma practitioners. There was the uh, f- the late editor of the Middle Way, I think he was down there, uh, Stephen and Martine Batchelor, um, I think uh, 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 Vimalo, not Ajun, not English Ajahn Vimalo, but the German ex-monk Vimalo. Um, they all lived in this community at Sharpen. I mean, the idea is going to be a, this sort of intellectual, uh, intellectually kind of powerful, thorough, um, non-hierarchical, totally dharmic uh, residential community. And they had Trouble. <laughs> Certain yes. members of the community refuse to do the washing up because, you know, they, I'm a Dharma practitioner. I don't do the dishes. Quote unquote, unfortunately. So here, of course, the nuns, the nuns and monks will take care of the dishes equally so, uh, in their own, their own time, in their appropriate times of the year. But yeah, it was all—it was all very uh, high, uh, high-minded, and I, I, on the ideal level, they had all their kind of principles worked out, and their kind of where they were living—it was all—it was all worked out. But uh, they couldn't live with each other, and so that uh, that that effort at the uh, that particular uh, communal living uh, fell apart. So I think that's a, i get the feeling—that's just my personal impression that Lumpur was making a slightly. You know, tangential reference to the the fact of uh, living idealistic people have a terrible time living to, living together and that's not just i'm not just maligning that that community it's just happened so many so many times i remember uh when i was living in california we used to have a uh, a kind of inter-monastic conference buddhist monastic conference every year so there'd be people from the from the Theravada, um so sort of, uh, from the thai forest tradition there would be some uh nuns and monks from the sri lankan uh, tradition also from the korean tradition zen tradition uh, who are monastics like celibate monastics tibetan tradition and we would all usually about 30 or 40 of us would gather together and one american nun out of the tibetan tradition was aiming to start her own place as a residential monastery and a, uh, a, a american monk out of the thai forest tradition also was planning to move back to the states and during this one of these conferences, they got together over one of these sort of, uh, tea time sessions, and they said, "Let's start a place together." Yes, and uh, it was all very idealistic, and they're both kind of high powered, very committed, gifted people. And he said, "Well, that sounds like an interesting idea. How's that going to work?" And so, um, about uh, six or eight months later, this web uh, this sort of little website web page appeared, announcing the the foundation of this monastery. And it was like two or three pages of all the lists of of what they were going to do and what they weren't going to do. So that before they'd even found a place to live, they had all of their ideals spelled out, you know, about 25, 30, 40 points of exactly how this perfect interfaith uh, monastery was going to be. And both Ajahn Pasano and I were kind of looking at the screen together. Oh, man. (laughs) This is really going to hurt, you know. And, you know, we were good friends of ours and, and we really wished them well. But it's like, you know, if you lead with the head, they hadn't even found a place to, to, to live, so you didn't even know where you were going to be, you didn't uh, have any sense of how it was going to, to really function on a day-to-day basis, but all the ideals were sort of there uh, in, up front. And so um, we both uh, and sure enough, the, interestingly enough, the, the place they found to, to start their their, in, uh, their monastery, the sort of Theravada Galugpa monastery was in, within a, an already existent Chinese temple. So they had to right from the get-go have Gelugpa Thai forest tradition and uh, Chinese um, Land tradition all co- collaborating together just to begin. And uh, so it didn't quite make it to a year before it, everybody moved on to their other different projects. So it's it's a really uh, um, uh, illustrating what Lumpur is saying here, how that um, if you if you start from the ideal, then you know, it's, it's necessarily going to not be connected to the time, the place, the situation, who you were with, what the, the, the needs of the moment are. There's the, and so that uh, within the, the, the practice of Dhamma, at least as, as I've experienced it in the way that Lumpur Cha has established things and Lumpo Samaito in the West, you start with where you are, not with where you should be or where you want to be, but Okay, you've, you've um, acquired a crumbled-down Victorian mansion in the, in the Sussex countryside, okay, so I guess we're all going to be builders for the next five years. <laughs> we learn how to restore Victorian, Victorian buildings, and uh, that's going to be most of our meditation for the next few years. So that you, you work with what you've got, rather than uh, the, uh, trying to start from where, where you're not. <laughs> Also, the, um, the last point that Lunkapur was making, um, uh, you think the world is crazy, I'm living in a madhouse, society is nuts, and it is actually. So a small point on that, uh, which I like to make, which I feel is very, uh, very helpful, is that uh, in Buddhist psychology, sanity comes with total enlightenment. So you're not sane until you're an arahant. So any arahant here can consider themselves perfectly sane. All the rest of us are in the psychiatric ward. Some of us are even wearing white. Very uh, appropriate. The nursing faculty, the... but they, this, and I, this is, I, I say this many, many times in, in different Dhamma talks because I feel it's actually more helpful. Because you, you look at a, a, news, well, a newspaper, a news reports, and you say, how can people do that? You know, this person lied to their partner, or this person was really horrible, and, you know, this, this teacher was really aggressive towards their pupils, or, or oh, these politicians, they're just lying through their teeth at each other. You or know, oh, this person, they're just totally driven by self advantage. Just, they just want to get what, what they like for themselves. How can they do that? Yeah, how can they be that way? Well, they're crazy. <laughs> so that uh, what what happens is that we, and I'm not condoning bad behaviour, but we tend to think people should behave like arahants. And then there's oh shock horror when they lie to each other, or they steal things, or they want to get the best bit for themselves. But well, we should not be surprised if they were, if arahants behaved like that. Yes, we should be shocked and horrified. But, you know, how can they do that? You know? Arahants shouldn't behave that way. But uh, in the, the Buddhist perspective, that if you're not an Arahant, then your mind is experiencing some degrees of craziness. Uh, and the judgments are necessarily going to be mistaken. They're going to be flawed. There's going uh, to be errors. And, and you, the mind's going to get caught up in greed, hatred, and, and delusion. So that w- it, uh, <coughs> when you look at it that way, and again, I'm open to questions or comments, and please speak up. If you look at it that way, then rather than, than expecting everyone to behave like an arrow hunt and thinking everyone is sane just because of the psychiatric unit, therefore they should behave absolutely impeccably and beautifully and nobly, and then being shocked and horrified when they're not, then recognizing, well, no wonder your family's difficult, they're crazy. They are crazy. So when you try to explain to your parents or your children or your partner or your siblings you know, your perspective and they just think, you know, you're stupid and wrong, they're totally entitled to do that because they're crazy. Uh, well, yeah, it's like going into a psychiatric ward and saying, you know, you shouldn't be uh, you shouldn't be obsessed with counting the bars on the window. You know, stop that. There's no point. You counted them fifteen times already. You've done that, so so stop. It's like, well they're crazy. They just want to keep counting the bars on the window. That's that's what they're doing. And so just like it's foolish to tell a crazy person to, to totally change their behavior or expect them to, to just stop and, and be sane and, and level, they can't do that. So that, uh, again, I'm not condoning bad behavior or following greed, hatred, and delusion, but if we shift the line of, of sanity from just being able to cope with living in society and hold down a conversation or a job <laughs> to arahantship, then you find yourself being far more compassionate. You create much more space in your heart for the people that you live with. It's like, well, uh, okay, he's pretty weird, but you know, that's all right, he's crazy. <laughs> 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 you know, and like they, in one of the, in Lumpur Cha's, uh, one of his Dhamma talks that again gets quoted over and over, when you see, you walk down the street and someone comes up to you and starts swearing at you and abusing you, then they, they, they walk off. You think, how can he say that? That's really awful, that's terrible. You know, I, I, and you, you are kind of heated and upset and annoyed, and then someone comes along and tells you, oh, that was Som, Did, haven't you ever met Som before? Yeah, he's out of his mind. Oh, he's crazy, okay. And then you relax, because you know the guy's crazy. So Lumpur would use that example over and over again, so that if we learn to recognize that most people are crazy, then we can make much more space in our hearts, rather than like, how could you do that? You told me a lie. How could you do that? You know, you took the best—you took the best bit for yourself. That's awful. You know. Yes, that's that feeling within our heart, but you find you can make space for it because people are driven by uh, unreliable, crazy impulses. So, anyway, to any questions, comments, reflections. So- can look completely dysfunctional and strange and crazy and so on and so forth. And you just, you just learn to realize that the practice is messy. The fact that you sort of practice, mm-hmm. that, that you, you, practice done, like, you learn things and you have insights and so on doesn't stop life being messy. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's exactly the theme that uh, Lumbachawa put across in terms of, of um, uh, and and, and uh, Lumbosomato would very very often make that point. It was one of the things that he really appreciated was how he Ajahn Chao wasn't running a monastery trying to make everyone like him or saying you uh, the perfect nun the perfect monk should be this way and if you're not like her or like him then you're 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 wrong and you're bad. So, um, but uh, but rather he would. Make space for the people who were are, um, weird, <laughs> and yeah, who uh, who had kind of uh, difficult challenges, and rather like you can't stay here because you're 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 falling asleep in the meditation, or you can't stay here because you're not you you you've been here for five years and you still can't you still can't handle a broom and sweep leaves without creating you know, chaos, and injuring yourself. He said, "Well, that's interesting. That's amazing. Five years, and he still can't handle a broom." Well, some people are like that, you know. <laughs> and so that—that uh, that I feel is—and but also he would say how, in a sense, the messiness becomes the very agency for your wisdom to develop. That, one, not, rather than complaining about someone because they're not like you or like how you think they should be, but oh, look at that—that that particular trait is really intimidating and really upsetting. How can I, how can I learn from that? And the, f- the friction that's there, both with things that you're annoyed at, also things that you're inspired by, like if you find yourself always looking up to a particular person, oh, if only I was like that, if I had a brain like that, that monk, oh, life would be so easy, it'd be so great, or oh, if only I could uh, you know, meditate as, as still and be as patient and calm as that person, oh, well, that'd be so great. And so that you you learn from that as well. So it's not just the difficulties or the painful things. It's also the mind is inspired by that person. And it's saying, if I could be that way, then everything will be great. But look at that. That's what you learn from is if only I wasn't me, if I was just, if I, if I wasn't me, but I was like that, everything will be fine. And so that, that, um, uh, that sense of wrongness or things being out of, out of, balance or not not good enough or not the shape they should be. That's the very uh, friction that you use to to learn how your mind is working. Yes. It's a signal think sometimes that messiness and chaos, you can laugh at it or think, oh well that's the way life is, but sometimes it's as like you see there's suffering or other people are hurting each other or there's sort of difficult just to sort of You, but you mm-hmm. see other each other. Yeah. So it's well you still it's not easy to <laughs> it's, messy. it's yeah. Well you're not being again it's like getting out of the way of the elephant. You're not being stupid. Yeah. So that but you're ready to work with the situation so that if there's somebody who's uh, in in living in a monastery I mean I've lived in the community for forty years now, my my whole adult life. I've lived with lots of people. <laughs> In community, and so if someone's behaviour is really disruptive or harmful, if they're really destructive, then you make input, you give feedback at the, at the appropriate moments, and you say, "Look, that was really, uh, that was a really painful to to be around you. Know, the way you spoke to that person, you know, the the way you talked to David in mean, that meeting, I felt that was that was really unkind and, and and hurtful. You know, what was on your mind, or are you aware of that? And then you you give feedback, and then and then you help. People to change to the degree that you can, or or you you check that your perception of their behaviour is matched by other uh, good-hearted people, and say, yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, David is just in a crumpled heap, staring into his teacup at the back of the sala. He's been there for five hours. Yeah, yeah that's not good. <laughs> we need to do something. So then you you address it, and then there are th- there are rules of thumb. You say you you try a few times over, and then you. Uh, uh, and you say you know give people feedback and say look this is this is carrying on you've been given feedback on this so many times you know you need to change your, you need to change your behavior or you have to find somewhere else to live or um or you have to you know you you, you were fine before you were the work monk um yeah we're definitely going to make you step down from that because you can't carry on doing that because you turn into Stalin. you know? <laughs> As soon as you have the you know the work monk hat on you you were fine before but now you've become this dictator and so then so you 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 work with the situation so it's not like either uh, attacking it or or being numb it's like the hamlet soliloquy to take arms against the sea of troubles uh, and by opposing end them it's like do do you deal with your troubles by attacking them or do you suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune you just sort of sit there and say okay well that's the way it is you know david's being abused again you know and and i'm just using you as a random example and so um okay well just that's how he is that's the 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 buddha's solution to hamlet's dilemma about whether you attack a problem or you just become passive is you work with the problem it's not uh, uh, say contending against the way things are or um or just being um, passive in the face of the way things are but working with the way things are so again it goes back to your capacity to act is part of the way things are so that recognition of okay well i'm part of this community i keep seeing you know this person acting in such and such a way and that, that's happened here you know yeah and uh, there have um you know i won't mention any names but it comes to the point where you see someone's conduct is really harmful and destructive and you try this way you try that way you try this way you try that way you take various different alternative routes and it's like okay this person's got to go you say i'm sorry but uh you know either we were employing you or you were part of the community or that uh yeah we understand that you're a monk but uh you know that uh i can't support you staying here any longer you're gonna to have to find somewhere else to live so you you know and then you you work with the situation again is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relational process. You work with the people that are living there, you get feedback from the people around you. you you're not just working to a, a, like a, a game plan or a system, but you, you, it's an organic uh, relational process. And you, you take that into account, you, so you're coming from a place of responding to a situation rather than just reacting or being idealistic or, or being stupid but um, like you're standing on the street you see an elephant charging towards you, you so well my guru told me that uh, if i follow the guru's instructions i'll never be harmed i think you would probably instruct me to get out of the way of the elephant okay let's move <laughs> so you're you're weighing it up and then uh, and so sometimes you know the it comes to a point where you have to tell people things they don't want to hear but and the buddha did that yeah and uh, but yeah as i said the buddha sometimes he would say things that were true they were helpful but they were not pleasant to hear and uh, and he would choose the right time and the place to to make those kind of comments yeah could you expand on um, awareness, uh, awareness for babies the same as awareness for dying person well the the mind is uh, aware of the the activity of the of the of the senses, the field of experience. So, for a baby, knowing comfort, discomfort, knowing hungry, knowing full, that quality of knowing is what it's knowing is ooh, full feeling. Yes, without the words. Uh, a dying person is there knowing oh, there's discomfort in the body, but uh, that the mind is at ease, or not, or that this is the, uh, I was really hoping to avoid this. (laughs) And that's what it's aware of. So it's just like, but I think gravity is a very good example in some respects. So like, you know, David's experience of gravity, your experience of gravity, Sister Tisara's experience of gravity, Tim's experience of gravity, Tanna's experience, my experience, it's felt through the agency of our individual lives and sensory systems, but it's the same quality. Its functioning, it, it, our bodies are affected by it equally. It's not a personal thing. You never. I mean, who's, who's ever thought the word my, the words my gravity? Doesn't make sense. that it? it's, it's meaningless. Huh? That I feel it. So, so uh, what I, I think is a helpful way to. And it takes a lot of disengaging because it's like my thoughts, my feelings, my mind, my life, my memories, my hopes. The I feelings are deeply embedded in the world of experience. But when we use the words um, like uh, vinyanupadana kanda, the, 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 the faculty of consciousness or the faculty of knowing, uh, just of cognizing, it's a, there's a grasping in there, the mind is grasping that quality of knowing. And that which knows, that which is at the very root, that which is aware uh, of what the mind is, is grasping and, and how, that's a non-personal quality. Now, uh, it's, again, the Paul says, you know, these are for reflection. It's not like saying, you should believe this. But it's like, to <laughs> shift the way of of looking. Sometimes, if you think too much, you, give yourself a headache. But just to take a, a little phrase like, uh, awareness is like gravity. How could gravity be personal? It's felt here, it happens, it's known here, but how could it have an owner? Okay, can, can awareness be seen in the same way? Can that which knows light and dark, uh, happiness, unhappiness, can that be seen in the same way? Can it? And just kind of exploring that the the moment by moment experience. So uh, the awareness that knows a baby's body and a baby's feelings, the awareness that knows an adult's or a child's uh, perceptions and feelings, the, the the awareness that knows that the feelings of someone who's who's uh, say seriously injured or is is paralysed or you know uh, or without the, without the but that's where the training comes in. That's why we practice, is that if there isn't that, the, the quality of practice and disentangling the, those habits of eye-making and mind-making, then the, the, um, the uh, impulse is going to be, I'm, f- I'm happy, I'm, I'm unhappy, I'm, uh, I'm dying. But often they say that the moment of death is particularly ripe uh, opportunity as the consciousness is disengaging from the senses and it's like the Anattā teaching is like yeah that is <laughs> that, <that's laughs> that how it is. so it's the the clue you got a massive clue it's like when you're stuck with a crossword and uh <laughs> what the heck is that word and then you your your partner's an expert and you say i'm stuck on seven across it's the last thing that i should be able to get i can't get it and then the person who's already solved it says, well, try <laughs> such and such. And then they go, oh, of course. So that kind of the dying of the body, if there's a sufficient alertness, and that also that the, um, the mind has got the, in a sense, the preparedness, that can often be the, the, the a kind of particularly ripe moment for realizing, oh, was, what was all that about? All those things that were so important, I thought were so precious and that I thought belonged to me. Oh! it's So with the right kind of guidance and the, the, de- the time of death can be... It's like a natural ordination. Your mother nature's renunciation process. You don't have to say let go because it's going. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. There was a... Uh, to tell another story, there was this... Um, this fellow that I used to know in California, who was a very, very kind of tough can do don't need any help for anything kind of a bloke. And, uh, he had been the, the kind of, um, house manager of Esalen Institute during the, the, the wild and woolly days of the, of the, of the mid sixties. And, um, he lived in a little town called Point Reyes and he sort of retired from his main jobs. He's, he's quite, he's, he's in his mid sixties. And he had a little repair shop in the town. So everybody knew him when they put their toasters and lawnmowers. Basically, if he had an engine, he could fix it. So he was a very much a can-do kind of person. He was always in charge of his life. And, uh, <clears throat> and so uh, he would had pleurisy and pneumonia for about three or four winters in a row. And, he got, and his lungs were going again. he thought, yeah, I feel pretty rough. I should get to the clinic. So he walked to the clinic. It was about a mile and a half from his home. He's got, he's got. I think he had pleurisy and, and pneumonia, and his heart, heart failure were happening at the same time. Uh, and he, uh, he got to the clinic and then collapsed in the garden on the lawn outside the clinic. He didn't even drive himself. He just thought he thought he walked there. Collapsed on the lawn, and so then all the, the doctors and nurses came rushing out and started hooking him up and and and. Uh, and he said, what's happening? He says, well, it looks like your lungs are packed up and you're having a heart attack. And that's for starters. That's what we can see right now. And then he said, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> and then, and this was his, his daughter. He had four daughters, yeah, all by different mothers. But It's not <laughs> the story. One of the daughters was telling me this. I did his funeral for him. And uh, one of the daughters was telling me that he, he was lying there. And he said, I'm not ready for this. And then, uh, yeah, then the, the helicopter came in and landed because it's quite a remote town. They didn't have a very big hospital there, so helicopter him into the hospital in San Francisco, and, and so they're uh, they buckling him up onto the onto the, the kind of uh, gurney, the, sort of, the, the big tray to be latched onto the feet of the helicopter. And he, he's lying there, and, she's, and his daughter said, "Well, I guess I, I'm ready for it now." <laughs> So that, you know, between the time when he collapsed and about half an hour later, he's like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this. I'm not going. And then all the signals are like, your lungs are gone, your heart's going. This is act five, scene five, mate. You know, it's all over. And so during that time, even someone who's like, I can do, you know, you've got pleurisy and pneumonia and your heart's dicky and you walk a mile and a half to the clinic. It's like, I'm in charge of this. And uh, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> And so within that half hour, but also he'd been a keen meditator and been around Buddhist teachings, so he realized, okay, that's what all this Dharma stuff was about. Here we go. <laughs> and and he actually died in air. He died in the gurney on the on during the flight to the hospital. So I was quite impressed by that story and that uh, that this sort of I'm not going, I'm not ready for this, this isn't happening. And then okay, yes it is. And with that training, with having being able to read the right the signals in a skillful way then you can you can let that go you can you can recognize your um, the limitations that were always there and and and, uh, not be bound by that and so that often it's when some kind of crisis like that happens either death or injury or some kind of disaster then it reveals those those qualities of uh, limitation that you were never really in charge we only ever really were the renter, not the owner. And then the, those kind of crisis moments are what can help to to support insight. So, like what Sister was saying about the the, the messiness of community life and, and difficulties and conflicts and like really awkward situations. It's like, ah, okay, <laughs> what do we do with this? And you find that uh, those difficulties become the immediate source for for wisdom and getting a a, a good perspective on these lives function according to the laws of nature and there is no person who is in charge. So I'll just read the last couple of paragraphs to finish off this talk. Many of us want to get enlightened and live happily ever after. We want to have the big moment so that everything will be plain sailing after that and we will perpetually live in this blissful state of moronic happiness. For so people whose English is not their first language, moronic means stupid, like kind of a water buffalo happiness. <laughs> <laughs> not to malign water buffaloes, but that's a kind of empty-headed happiness. This is a kind of ideal. According to the Pali scriptures, however, this didn't even happen to the Buddha. Apparently, all sorts of things happened to the Buddha after his enlightenment. People tried to murder him, scandalize him, abuse him. There's a story, in fact, about some monks being so difficult and such a problem to him that one day he told them that he'd had enough, and so he went off to spend the rainy season with an elephant and a monkey. <laughs> Actually, he didn't even tell them he had enough. He just left. He, t- with that, he took his robe and his bowl and he just, he just walked. Voted with his feet, as they say. Went off to the Parileca forest and lived there. So the elephant would would suck up water from the pool to to give him a shower. The monkey would gather fruit uh, from the trees and give him uh, bananas and mangoes and whatnot. Spent the rainy season with an elephant and a monkey. Elephants and monkeys are probably easier to live with, actually. (laughs) So, according to the scriptures, even the Buddha got pretty fed up with the world he lived in. The point is not to attach to things. As much as we get weary and fed up, the challenge is always... Uh, not to attach to feelings. Recognize and accept that it is like this, but do do that without holding or grasping anything. Actually, there is something in me that in a perverse sort of way likes to hold on to world weariness. I quite enjoy it, you know, thinking I've had enough, or that it is another one of those meetings where issues are brought up and the grumbling mind takes over. I quite enjoy that, actually. So he's very, nothing like a good grumble. It's being English, I can say that. we uh, think living here for over 40 years, Lumpur, picked that up. Nothing like a good grumble. (coughs) The grumbling mind takes over. I quite enjoy that, actually. The point is to see through the grasping of it. But sometimes it seems as though I'm becoming incredibly simple-minded rather than any kind of wise sage. And also, uh, continuing the theme, the next talk is disruption belongs. So that's the next <laughs> one. <song. laughs>